Coast of National Security. I'm Professor Ryan Vogel, Director of the Center for National Security Studies at Utah Valley University. And I'm Professor Jonathan Rudd, Associate Director of the Center. We're joined today by Alan Fuller, the Chief Information Officer for the State of Utah. Prior to his current position with the state, Alan specialized in analytics, business intelligence, and product management, and held positions with Oracle, Siebel Systems, and the National Association of Securities Dealers. Alan received his MBA from the Wharton School of Business and a BS degree in economics from Brigham Young University. We're also joined by Phil Bates, who's the Chief Information Security Officer for the past seven years with the Utah Department of Technology Services. And before that, he spent 15 years as the IT Director for the Utah Department of Public Safety. Welcome, both of you. Thanks so much. Yeah, good to be here. It's great, to be here. great to have both of you here. You know, many of our students and listeners are interested in different career paths. And so we're wondering if you can give us a brief overview of your educational background and the opportunities that led to your current position as Chief Information Officer for the state. Sure, I'd love to do that. You know, it's kind of interesting when you're a student, you stress so much about what your major is. And I did as well. I was in my undergraduate program at Brigham Young University, and I ultimately ended up majoring in math and economics. And I decided to pursue a, a career as an economics professor. And so I really focused hard on the economics and got accepted and went to the University of Rochester in Rochester, New York in a PhD program in economics. And when I got there, it turned out, you know, I hated it. And, <laughs> and so I bailed out of that program after a year. And I worked in the private sector for a couple of, uh, for four years, actually. I worked at, a, at an airline at the, the National Association of Securities Dealers, which is the parent of the NASDAQ stock market. And in that role, I was working very heavily with stock data, stock trading data, stock quoting data. And I decided I wanted to be a mutual fund manager. So I went off to get an MBA in finance at the one of the top finance schools in the nation, the Wharton Business School. And I got through a year of that program, and I did an internship in the program, an internship at a at a financial management company. And my wife calls that the summer of discontent. <laughs> I hated it. It wasn't at all what I'd hoped for. And I came back and changed my major and started interviewing with technology companies, and then ended up getting recruited out of business school into a, a software company called Siebel Systems, based in California. And uh, Siebel was later. Uh, acquired by a large technology company called Oracle. And basically, uh, I was with that uh, Siebel and Oracle for combination for 21 years in a variety of product management and information technology roles. And through those 21 years and a variety of experiences, it, it worked out that um, when uh, Governor Cox and the state of Utah were looking for a a chief information officer. Um, somehow I became connected with that process and miraculously uh, Governor Cox chose to pick me. And uh, so for the past two years, I've been uh, with the state of Utah. This is my first foray into state government, but sometimes, uh, so I don't have a computer science degree or background, but uh, um, that uh, sequence of events led to me into the position that I am now. So now you're a chief information officer for the state of Utah. What types of things do you focus on as a CIO, um, and how would you compare that with your 
roles in the private sector before this? Sure. We're um, the the division of technology services is a is a full service IT organization for the executive branches of the state. So we don't serve universities or the legislature or courts, but we do serve all of the departments that fall under the governor. So Department of Transportation, Department of Tax, Department of Health and Human Services, Public Safety, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we do we provide, you know, all of the technology needs for those organizations, whether it's application development, networking, productivity tools, uh, hosting, or any variety of, of technology services that may be needed. So as in my role as chief information officer, um, I manage the division of technology services. And, and as part of that, we also have our cybersecurity center uh, led by our chief information security officer, Phil Bates, who's here with me today. So with that role as the as the chief information officer, one of your major roles is to understand the cyber threats that are facing the state. Yeah, that's right. We live in a very dangerous world where we're nearly constantly under attack by malicious actors who are trying to to steal data or create some kind of disruption or threaten our uh, systems in some way. And so we have to we have to defend against those uh, with a variety of systems and methodologies to keep the the state's data safe and protected. You asked earlier what would our how does this compare to our my prior role in the private sector? It's interesting because at the state we have a very broad variety of challenges and problems that we're we're facing, you know, whether it's collecting taxes or in the social services area, helping some of the most fragile members of our society, or or if it's in the public safety area or in the transportation area or in the education area, there's a really broad variety of challenges that we're trying to to work on and, and help, and in our case, use technology to improve. Whereas in the private sector, I feel like um, we often became very, very focused on one very specific problem that we needed to solve, you know, a product we were trying to ship or a, a system we were trying to deploy. Hmm. What are the most maybe significant cyber threats facing Utah, the government, but also Utahns? Some of the big ones that we have are uh, that have made the press a lot would be ransomware. So ransomware is where a malicious actor basically gets some malicious code onto your network or onto your system, and they can encrypt your files and lock them up and then require a code to unlock them. And to give you that code, they demand money, a ransom. And so that uh, ransomware is uh, unfortunately becoming quite pervasive and is very dangerous. There's other types of attacks like phishing attacks or denial of service attacks. There's a, there's, uh, a lot of different techniques, and it's kind of a running battle between the good guys and the bad guys trying to block the good guys trying to block the bad guys and the bad guys trying to come up with new ways to attack. I don't know, Phil, if there's any anything else you'd like to add. Yeah, just uh, watching this over the years, I've, I've kind of had a front row seat to this over the last 20 years, and we've seen a migration in government from paper records to digital records. And as they made that transition, the first group we really saw that we used um, – illegal access into those records for some gain was anonymous. They'd find ways into systems and then try to use that uh, information to embarrass governments. Well, criminal elements were watching that and going, well, that's pretty interesting. We may be able to make some money off of that and not only use it for an influence campaign. So right behind that, we saw them learning from them, and then we saw them start to steal data and then use that data in a criminal manner. 
Uh, you remember the big breaches we had of health systems and they were selling health records. That was one of the first early ones that we saw them from an organized criminal. And they look just like uh, a software company here today. You know, they have developers. They have people that resell this stuff, people that normalize it and get it ready for sale. Um, and so when you look at these people that are carrying it out, it's not somebody from somebody's basement. These are organized, like, commercial companies, really, that are a billion-dollar business. Yeah. I'd be interested, Phil, with your experience in how uh, you talking a little bit about how important it is to collaborate and cooperate with, you know, you've worked for the state. You know, how much cooperation is there with the federal government and also with private industry? And we started back in 2012, a real cooperative effort with the federal government. At the time, we were getting hit really hard with Anonymous. Anonymous were not here in Utah attacking Utahns. They were all over the country attacking Utahns. So we developed a partnership with the FBI, and the FBI was able to really go after some of these folks. And interestingly enough, they were using social media to communicate with one another and coordinate attacks and things like that. Um, the FBI, when they arrested players in that, would let them retain their social media so that they could let everybody know they had been arrested, what that whole experience was like. We saw that overnight really decrease and diminish. So we found that the, our relationship with the FBI, they've got so many tools we don't have in Utah. And when we look at cyber security and cyber crime, you know, if it's financial, they're, they're moving this money to offshore banks and different places like that where the FBI has reach. We don't as a state. So... It's been very beneficial. A lot of times on this podcast, uh, we talk about national security challenges that might seem more distant or remote to the average listener. How can the average person who may not have very much technical expertise, if any, keep themselves safe on the internet? Well, I think there's a couple things, simple things that they can do. First of all, don't don't click on strange links if it's from someone you don't know. And I know that's basic. Many people have probably heard that. But if you click on those links that you don't know, what you're actually getting is probably malware installed on your system. And that malware can do pernicious things that uh, allow bad people to access your data or your system that you don't want. The second thing you can do is make sure you have multi-factor authentication on your accounts. Any account that you have where you have money, any kind of bank account or anything like that, you definitely want to have multi-factor access turned on. Phil, what else would you recommend? Uh, you know, we work with CISA, C-I-S-A. Um, it's a branch within Homeland Security, and that's their main mission is cybersecurity. If you go to their site, CISA.gov, they manage a whole section of what to do, how to do for parents, um, users of the Internet. One of the things we've noticed is, as we patch our systems, we've gotten a lot better at that. The malware protection we have is a lot better. So they're now going after the end user. Um, we had an incident oh, just a couple of days ago where they had tried to get on one of our machines. Um, they were unsuccessful because of our antivirus, and um, we had locked down rights, and the, the, they couldn't get anywhere. Mm. So they asked the user, well, do you have any other machines around you that we can try out? Because we think you're using some illegal software here. Well, they were working from home and went to their home machine, and, of course, that didn't have the protections we had on the, the, the business machine that we had, but uh, they're going after the user now. So if it sounds suspicious, it doesn't sound right, Microsoft is never going to call you at home and say you've got bad software on your – so it's just common sense. If it doesn't sound right, don't go along with it. Validate it before you give up anything. So other than, than these tips, are there baseline rules that you would give uh, just so that the average – 
person out there can protect themselves? The, the most common one we see exploited, Alan's mentioned that, if you can turn on multi-factor, and almost everything does, multi-factor is essential these days. I can look up just about anybody's username or email address out on the dark web, and they've already got passwords for every account you have out there yeah. through key loggers or breaches that they've had. Um, it just It's just so um, readily available to get your passwords. If you don't have two-factor, they're going to get in your accounts if they want to. You know, another thing that is important is to avoid having unsupported software on your machine. Um, you know, people might be hanging on to that Excel 2003 and, you know, it still works. But uh, the problem is, is once the big companies, once those software applications go off of support, the the vendors that provide those applications are no longer patching them or protecting them. And that's why, you know, you'll hear Microsoft or these other vendors really trying to push people to the more um, to the ones they are supported because they are providing patches for those. And if there is any kind of a vulnerability that they become aware of, they will be very quick to put out a patch. And so keeping your system and your software, those annoying upgrades that come up, yeah, take those. Uh, keep keep your systems updated and upgraded, and that'll, that'll help uh, make sure you don't have vulnerabilities in your system. You know, CISA came out with the top three reasons why people are getting um, compromised. One is just that, the outdated software, unpatched software. The other one that's really common is uh, installing things and leaving default passwords. That's really common. Mm. And that, that's an open door for folks to get into your home router that you haven't set up correctly. Mm. And then any login that's exposed to the internet must have two-factor. That's just uh, the way we live, the world we live in today. Alan, my understanding is that you've been working with a, 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 a new technology called self-sovereign identity. I was wondering if you could explain kind of what that is and what problem that solves. Yes, I'd love to. We're really excited about this. So basically, um, another um, way to talk about this is to, to think about, um, for us, the digital delivery of government services or, or for more generally in society, the digital delivery of transactions. And you know, if you think about a transaction, um, a simple transaction that where a credential is presented, say like a uh, a person wants to write a check at a grocery store, and the the clerk at the counter asks for some ID, and so the person provides a driver's license. What we have is a holder of a digital credential, a verifier of a cred digital credential, and we have an issuer, in this case, the state uh, providing the driver's license. So you have a, a holder, an issuer, and a and a verifier of the digital of the credential. And if you take that whole transaction and move it to the digital world, you need a way for the holder to hold a digital credential, a wallet in which they can hold it. The issuer needs to be able to issue a digital credential, and the verifier needs to be able to verify both the issuer and the holder that they have a legitimate credential. And to do this, we believe that we can use blockchain technology as a verified data registry. Now, the credential itself, say the driver's license or whatever credential, could be a fishing license, um, a birth certificate, a marriage license, any number of credentials. The, the, the credential itself wouldn't need to be on the blockchain, but the blockchain would hold a cryptographic code that identifies the issuer of the credential and the holder of the credential as legitimate. And so what this basically means 
And uh, before I get too lost in the technical jargon, it just basically means that we could we can create and distribute credentials, digital credentials, that have the same veracity as the hard copy credential. So imagine a digital driver's license, imagine a digital fishing license, a digital hunting license, or any credential that the state or a sub. Um, or another uh, or another organization might want to to uh, issue could uh, a way for that to be verified and validated so that it it cannot be hacked it cannot be stolen and uh, self sovereign identity is the uh, is a kind of a generalized way of referring to this notion of verified digital credentials and let me give you just a, a simple example today Imagine someone goes uh, to a place where they might need to um, validate their age. Maybe it's a bar, for example, and they they walk in, and someone might need to they might need to provide proof that they're over the age of twenty one. Well, today, if that person has to pull out a hard copy of their driver's license and hand it over, they're giving a lot of information: their address, their height, their weight, um, driver's license number, a picture, home, you know, all kinds of information. And what we really would like to have it digitally is a way for them to just say, is there a state-issued credential that says this person is over 21? Yes or no? And digitally, you could do that. You could make that available. So they say there's a QR code in your digital wallet. You present that QR code. The verifier, the person at the door at the bar, could just scan the code. Behind the scenes, when that code is scanned, it goes back, checks against the state blockchain. It says, yes, the cryptographic code for the issuer checks out. The cryptographic code for the holder checks out. This person, there is a state-issued credential, i.e. a driver's license, that says this person is over the age of 21. You know, go on in. And uh, and so the moving credentials to the digital world is going to require us to have uh, a digital way to verify those credentials that they're valid that they're that the issuer is who they say they are and that the holder has a valid credential and so all of that is what we're looking at in terms of helping citizens to to do safer more secure transactions online by having digital credentials. Now, one other aspect of self-sovereign identity that I think is really important to understand is that self-sovereign identity allows each person to own their own uh, identity, as opposed to saying like having an account in a centralized database where the account the, the organization holds your account and your identity. This allows each person to maintain their own identity. And so it's a, it's a very secure, um, it's a very secure way of providing identity. And I think it's, it's the way the, the future is going to go. It's going to be a journey. It's going to take us some years to get there. But I think ultimately you'll see um, you won't need to use a password to log in. You'll be able to present a credential with your identity directly, and and so the password will become unnecessary, and it will be more secure than having a password. So you'll just be able to go, you'll scan a QR code, say on your phone, presents a digital identity. Behind the scenes, it checks the issuer, it checks that you're a valid holder, 
and boom, in you go. So I, I think this will be a tremendous benefit uh, to society ultimately to have digital credentials and uh, verifiable digital credentials and self-sovereign identity. So that's that's a, a project that we're working on. It's early days, but we're excited about uh, moving in this over the next few years. Given our growing tech community, Utah's probably well positioned to take a leading role in the adoption of new technologies like self-sovereign identity. What are your thoughts about the growth and development of Silicon Slopes and, and the tech industry here in Utah? Yeah, you know, it's amazing. Um, we have so much expertise here in the state. We really do very, very well with our technology sector. Specific to SSI, it turns out that we have a number of world-renowned leading experts in this technology right here in the state. And some of those are advising us and helping us in our efforts, and it's really terrific. More generally about Silicon Slopes, I'm delighted and excited with the growth of technology companies in the state. We have some wonderful companies doing really interesting things. And, you know, it's it's uh, kind of amazing to see the growth of the technology industry here in the state. And, you, you know, you look at companies like Qualtrics and Lucid, who have just been phenomenally successful. And, of course, even going back into the early days with WordPerfect and Novell, um, you know, we, we have a history in the state of technology innovation, and, and that's awesome. The one downside I would mention for us as a state, uh, as as a person who uh, managed an or a technology organization, is that uh, we are always looking for talent in the space, and uh, it's a very competitive market with all the technology companies that are that are growing. So. Um, there's a challenge uh, to try to always find the talent we we want, but uh, overall, very exciting for the state. So, in in today's world, this whole concept of information technology and information management is a daunting proposition. And in the national security courses that I teach, one of the challenges that I talk about with students is how do we manage information. How do we determine what's accurate information or false information? And this is a, it's a big issue these days. And oftentimes I find students feel um, a little bit negative about the future. Uh, and so I'm wondering what your perspective is on the future of information and information technology. That's a really great question. And, you know, I feel very positive about the future of technology. And the, the concern is definitely there. And uh, on the concern side, you know, just uh, this week, Governor Cox held a press conference talking about uh, the state potentially suing social media companies because of the harm that social media can be doing to the young people. And uh, there's some a lot of data and growing body of evidence about about that. On the other hand, with technology in general, we're living in a wonderful, wonderful time when technology can be used to solve really difficult problems. And one example might be, you know, we have a problem with homelessness in the state. We're looking at a number of technology solutions to try to help us address the problem of homelessness and help homeless people's needs to be met, helping them to get food, helping them to get shelter, helping them to ultimately get out of a homeless state into a sheltered state. And you know, as you look around, there are just a, a number of problems that have been difficult to solve that we can now apply technology to solve. Some of the exciting things that are coming in the technology space, we have uh, our artificial intelligence is, is growing quickly and is likely to play a big factor going forward. Um, 
One small branch of artificial intelligence is called robotic process automation or RPA. And, you know, I, I am very bullish about the positive benefits that RPA is going to bring to the state government. An example might be, think of an, think of an accounting process where an accountant has a job where an, an invoice comes in, they have to match an invoice with a purchasing doc, with some other doc out there. And, you know, each time they have to do this, it takes four or five minutes. It's kind of a manual process they have to do in multiple different systems to match these things up. Well, um, you can train a robotic process automation to do that for you. And we have a pilot of this working right now, and it's working great. And so instead of taking four or five minutes, you can shave that down to like 10 seconds. And you'd multiply that by tens of thousands of invoices, and you've now just made employees way, way more effective and taking some of the manual work out of their day and allowing them to focus on higher value things that will really add value for for people in the state. So I, I think that it's an exciting time. I think we're going to continue to see um, some really valuable and meaningful advances in technology. And I and I do share the concern that um, there can be misuse of artificial intelligence, just like there's positive use of artificial intelligence. And I, I have concerns about uh, the misappropriation of social media to cause confusion or disruption in our society, sometimes intentionally by bad actors. So do I see concerns? Yes. But overall, I'm enormously excited and positive about the the benefits that technology can bring to the state of Utah. With security, without artificial intelligence, we couldn't keep up with it. There's just so much coming at us that we have to deploy solutions using that. And, you know, as a student, ChatGBT, what kind of uh, opportunity is that for people? Um, <laughs> yeah. I would have loved to have had that as a student going through, <laughs> through education. Our our final question really is is aimed at both of you. Um, and I think most of our listeners are either students or alumni or, or uh, people that are just entering this area. What advice would you both give, whether to students or folks already in the workforce who would like to be involved with information technology and security? I have a couple thoughts along those lines. So when, when most people say they want to get involved with information technology, they usually start thinking about, well, I need to be a programmer and I need to do a, like a computer science degree or an electrical engineering degree or something like that. And it's true that those degrees can be a very powerful avenue into specific roles within the technology space. But the thing is, there are so many different roles within the technology space. And like I mentioned, I mean, my, my uh, undergraduate degrees were in economics and math. My, my, uh, I went to a business school, not a master's in computer science, and I ended up in technology. The, the thing is, is if you think about all the ways technology gets deployed and used, you need project managers, you need um, you need product managers who understand marketing and business analysis. You need to you need to have trainers who are good working with people in a classroom to help train technology. You need good writers who can write uh, user manuals or write uh, training for for products. So there's actually a very broad set of skills and talents that can be used in information technology in addition to kind of the hardcore programmers that are going to be writing code. The other thing I want to mention is 
technology is moving more towards what I would call the democratization of development, meaning applications are more and more being uh, driven by application development platforms. Uh, an, an analyst firm, Gartner, put out a study saying that uh, in 2020, 25% of applications were developed in application development platforms. By 2025, they expect 75% of applications to be developed in application development platforms. And when I say an application development platform, I'm talking about platforms like Salesforce and ServiceNow and the Microsoft Power Platform. There's a number of others out there. But these are low-code, no-code solutions where you can build a very powerful application without being a computer science person writing a lot of Java code. And so, you know, the typical business person can help create an application for their business need much easier than ever before. And I see, I think we'll see that trend continue. So if people have an interest in and an aptitude in technology, I would suggest that they, they get a broad set of training with a focus in some technology areas to help them get their foot in the door and then, you know, go from there um, based on the, the, the needs to solve the problems. I don't know, Phil, if you have any other thoughts. Just a couple. So in technology, I, I don't think I've seen another field that has a more level playing field for folks. Anyone can come into technology and anyone can be successful in there if you apply yourself to it. Um, there really aren't barriers to anybody getting involved in it. And that that's one of the beauties of it. And it's so wide-ranged that you can get in it and you can change career paths over and over again to find things that if you get bored with something, move into another channel. There's so many opportunities there. That's great. That's great. Well, Alan, Phil, this has been a fascinating discussion. We really appreciate you being with us today. Hopefully we can have you back on the podcast soon. Thank you for being here today. Thanks a bunch. We look forward to it. Thank you. This has been an episode of In the Interest of National Security. Our guests have been Alan Fuller, the Chief Information Officer for the State of Utah, and Phil Bates, the Chief Information Security Officer. The views expressed on this show are those of the hosts or our guests and not necessarily Utah Valley University or the Center for National Security Studies. Today's episode was produced by Baxter Elwood, Ian McDonald, Joshua Coyman, and Kennedy Fitzpatrick, with audio production by Spencer Anderson and Thomas Rowe. The music was created and performed by Parker Rudd. Follow us on Instagram at iins.podcast to receive news and updates regarding future content. And please support us by subscribing at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Anchor.fm. Thanks for listening. We look forward to having you join us next time for another episode of In the Interest of National Security.